speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. Back to the Arnamancy podcast. I am here today with Abigail Atkins of Discordian Astrology. She studied ritual magic and the methods of esoteric spiritual development for nearly a decade, and she implements Kabbalistic astrology as a means of discovering the holy guardian angel and the soul's destiny in this lifetime. Hi, Abigail. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I guess it's probably like midnight where you are, but um, it's you know a nice sunny afternoon all the way over here on the other side of the planet. Uh, how did you tell me how you got started with astrology? Mm, that's an interesting question. I started out reading more mundane horoscopes, and I was always interested in paganism and Wicca from a very early age as a teenager even and over time this developed into a more of a gradual interest in how everything had been affecting my life because it seemed like I was experiencing a lot of synchronicities following a lot of occult literature and this put me on more of a path further in alignment with pursuing astrology steadily. I had a lot of uh, spiritual experiences where uh, ancestors were visiting me, telling me to study this very seriously, that it would really benefit me in a lot of ways. And the further I went along this path, the more rewards began to materialize for me personally. And the more I was able to really understand myself and strengthen my magical practice even, which is kind of where this all began. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when so you, you were talking early, like you mentioned mundane astrology or mundane horoscopes. Was that sort of, uh, is that sort of like the mundane astrology thing where you do like uh, readings for places or was it something along the lines of like... Um, mundane as in you're reading your horoscope in a newspaper yeah more that uh reading horoscope and i most of my writings are uh mundane horoscopes but i also am producing more content uh studying natal astrology and sinistry and draconic a few other different styles mm-hmm. doing transit reports and chart progressions and things of that sort. So then is your astrology mostly, is it sort of uh, like a modern style? Do you, so you include um, kind of the outer planets and asteroids and stuff like that? Correct. I am um, more leaning towards Kabbalistic astrology. Uh, traditional Western astrology. And 
the distinction there is uh, Western astrology is a little bit more deterministic, whereas Kabbalistic astrology, we are given the opportunity to overcome said harsh aspects and we aren't so uh, victimized by them. I think there's this uh, shift that occurred with my magical practice over time where there was this Luciferian consciousness, which was the deterministic aspect, and then it evolved into this Christ consciousness where there was more free will mm-hmm. and subtle underlying energies were present in order for us to integrate these experiences because Saturn rules the realm of reality and the natal chart is the map of self-imposed limitations that uh, we encounter in the childhood and Saturn works in seven year cycles and repeats these things over and over again. And Saturn's the Lord of karma and it's karma that we must overcome in this lifetime. If you know, uh, people are believers of reincarnation. So that means that the natal positioning of Saturn or, or where Saturn was the moment you were born has is sort of a, uh, uh, an indicator of the kind of challenges that you're going to have to face in your life? This can be true, but also, um, say, harsh aspects that we have Sun Square Pluto, for instance. I wouldn't consider any uh, Pluto aspect to be easy necessarily, but um, learning how to overcome what it is that we're working with rather than oh, I'm set in stone because I have moon square Saturn for the rest of my life, and I'll always kind of be a curmudgeon. Kabbalistic mm-hmm. astrology is more empowering in this regard that we are able to overcome these aspects and no longer be bound by our habitual emotional patterns of our past conditionings, um, mostly that occurred within the family or childhood. So does Kabbalistic astrology provide uh methods or techniques for for overcoming kind of like harsh natal aspects uh kabbalistic astrology works primarily with the tikkun which is uh, the karma that we must overcome in this lifetime that we our souls have chose this development in this path in order to put us in alignment with our highest selves so to speak mm-hmm And there's a great resource. It's called Kabbalistic Astrology, sitting here on my bookshelf. You can check the author by Ray Burke. Anyone would be interested in studying Tacon further. There's a lot of. What did you say? What was the author's name? Ray Burke. Kabbalistic Astrology. All right, cool. I haven't actually heard of that one. Is Is it sort of a modern Kabbalistic take on astrology? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I guess when I've heard the term tikkun before, uh, tikkun kind of can mean um, making whole or, or healing. So, you know, like one of the one of the kabbalistic processes that that you eventually go through after like integrating a lot of you know the teachings of Kabbalah is uh, tikkun olam or the the healing of the world, which is kind of where you take your what you've learned and sort of take it out into the world and try to be like, how can we make things better? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, 
So hold on. Uh, the, the, another thing that you said I, I want to know more about, you were talking about sort of like a transition from Luciferian to uh, Christ consciousness, which sort of provided more free will or had sort of a more, um, I guess I got the impression that it had more uh, potential for free will. Yeah. Is, how, how does, uh, where does, how does that work? I think this ties in more with my own magical practice, but I'm a moon and conjunct Saturn type and heavily mm-hmm. plutonic. So I've always been drawn to the darker aspects and doing a lot of shadow work all the time, which that's what we're doing in astrology. It's a form of depth psychology and integration of one's shadow. Okay. And it's easy to get caught up in this. Like, for instance, when I was starting out with magic, I had more left-leaning tendencies, not, uh, you know, primarily working with uh, goetic spirits, but over time this has evolved to working with more angelic beings. And this coincided with a shift within myself where I was no longer bound by this vantage point of separation or other which the shadow self tries to convince us of rather it's all interconnected interwoven it's all of god it's all of light like all darkness is insidious light so integrating the shadow and using it to your advantage even okay so you can so it was sort of like a uh, a departure from kind of like left-hand path sort of stuff yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Interesting. I, I, I would like to hear more about that in a little bit, but I also wanted to, you know, one of the things that you mentioned you wanted to talk about today is um, sinistry. Am I saying that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Sinistry. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what, what sinistry is? So sinistry is chart comparison, and it's the art of studying how two people interact People are like transits, and relationships are our fastest modus of healing and growth, and oftentimes there's this mirroring process that occurs within our intimate relationships where we're able to do our own shadow work through the other oh. easily through projection and things. But synastry, uh can give us a lot of clues as to what the dynamic of a relationship might look like depending on this person's soul evolution in and of themselves so when you are working with this when you're so you can basically look at uh two individuals charts and see how uh how one person's shadow or how one person's challenges can sort of be a um a helper or a or something that can aid the other person exactly um, doesn't even have to be challenges necessarily. It can just indicate, you know, lifelong best friends or intimate romantic partnerships or successful business associations. There's a plethora of uses for synastry. Hmm. Um, can you give me some examples of some things that you would look for? Like, are you looking for... Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't even know. Just any example. What, what sort of stuff do you usually look at? Like, what are some, uh, what are some good signs that things are in a good spot? You would want to look for harmonious aspects between personal planets. Okay. So, uh, harmony between 
the sun and moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars. And outer planets move a bit slower, so this is more of a generational transit, and everybody around the same age you might experience these outer planets loosely more similarly. But you also want to look uh, what house sign Uh person's personal planets are overlaying. Say you have a lot of person's planets in your fourth house. There may be more associations within the home, family. Say this person's connected to the 10th house. It could be important and relevant in your career. There's different. uh, it, It applies for Every house, of course. I'm not sure how familiar our viewers are with uh, house signs. It's based upon the ascendant, which is the constellation on the horizon at the time of birth. You need an exact birth time for this. Same thing for studying natal astrology. So, of- so let me let me ask. Uh, does this mean so when you're talking about the houses, that means like uh, you want to see how the other person's planets are relating to your to your natal houses? Yes, and vice versa. Okay. What about how... Oh, I'm trying to think of how that even looks when you're comparing charts. So then you need to know... So you could have, like, two people born on the same day, uh, but just, like, eight hours apart, having just vastly different house things going on with their planets, and that would be interesting from a from a synastry point of view. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Um, so, and when you're talking about harmonious aspects, you're talking mostly like, uh, uh, sextiles and trines. Yes. Okay. Sometimes conjunctions, depending on what planets are happening there. Conjunction is typically considered a harsh aspect, but I've seen things, uh, you know, like Mercury conjunct Venus, that would typically be a good aspect. What if you get things like, um, Mars conjunct Mars? I would say that there would be similar drives and ambitions there and the way that these people would assert their individuality and their will would be quite similar if they were sharing the same Mars placements. But if, say, for instance, you had Mars square the other person's Mars, there would be a bit more idiosyncrasies and maybe butting heads that you could expect. But it's through these conflicts, like each person has their own way of doing things and neither one of those are wrong it's just a matter of how can we work together with this and then okay okay but then when you're dealing with like the house placement thing you could have people with uh you know like their their mars is conjunct each other but their house the because of the house placement thing their 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 marses could be in completely different houses too yes that sounds complicated um, how do you, how do you, um, sort of like integrate those sorts of things? We would want to look for what the person's natal Mars had happening and how well or ill aspected it was and how that person handles their Mars individually. That might give some indication clues. You can't really isolate any one aspect and make a very broad conclusion about how a relationship might look or feel mm-hmm. like Mars in the 8th house can manifest in several different ways. So it depends on that person individually, but also how familiar they are with these different forms of depth psychology, what their childhood conditioning was like. 
Saturn. How do some of the other planets um, look in these sorts of things? Like what uh, you were talking about the outer planets um, moving more slowly. So those might be more uh, generational or, um, or bigger, I guess, slower moving interactions, which I mean, would that be the sort of thing where, you know, if I, you know, meet somebody a certain, you know, like, you know, with you know, six years apart from me, then I would have to worry about the fact that our Jupiters would be opposed. Yes. And how does that usually work out? I mean, because I mean, that seems kind of like a sweeping thing. Well, that's where the personal planets who are moving a bit more quickly come into play. Okay. So, does it, um, does it sort of like when you're looking at that kind of, um, big, or the, the slower moving planets, can you kind of give, can you kind of give like super generalized advice about that sort of stuff? Like watch out for people who are, you know, four years on either side of you because of the Jupiter aspects or watch out or, or, or do the personal planets have such a greater impact that the, that the outer planets are kind of uh, extremely diminished in importance? I would say they are of great importance, but it's operating on more of a subconscious level. And I would say not to be weary of any one person because, you know, they have Pluto square your sun or something. This can just indicate a heavily karmic relationship. Or if you're dating around the same age group and their Neptune opposes your Venus, it's not to say that every partner would have infidelity issues either, that kind of thing. Um, it, it depends on how you work with the energies of the planet that dictates a lot because it's our responsibility to work with these planets. A wise man uh, rules his stars, whereas a weak man is ruled by them. Mm-hmm. So, man, Hall says, so it's, it's up to us to take accountability to educate ourselves and really understand what these planets are doing and how they're operating on a more subtle level and influencing kind of the flavor of our relationships, but it's up to us to do with it what we want. Okay. That's interesting. So let's go back to kind of like how the houses uh, work together. Now, when you, I know that in natal charts, you pay a lot of attention to sort of like where the ascendant is. So like the rising sign is really important uh, and the midheaven can be pretty important, but also, so like for, uh, for Sinastri, you have kind of like houses overlapping in really interesting ways. So, I mean, I guess usually in like an astrology program, when you, when you do a Sinastri, it, uh, it lines everything up on like one chart's ascendant. Um, and I don't often see, or I don't know if I've ever seen the sort of option where you can be like, instead of lining this up on the ascendant, line it up on, you know, this, or I guess it always lines it up on the signs instead of on a house. So I've never really seen it. So you could, it could line it up on a house, but that gives you, that gives you kind of, um, uh, aspects between signs as well as aspects between, or as well as like planets appearing in, in different houses. Right. So you can have, you know, so if you line everything up on an ascendant, you can have like one person's Scorpio square, another person's Scorpio and sort of look at the whole sign. Yeah, so the way that that works, when we look at our own house sizes and where, uh, say, my rising is 7 degrees, 55 minutes Leo, 
and it, it depends if you're working whole sun either or if you're going by uh, very specific house sizes where say a person's sun is at 27 degrees Scorpio that would fall into my fourth house mm-hmm. and depending on what the other person's ascendant was say it's seven degrees Capricorn, my son at 28 degrees Cancer would fall into their seventh house. Seventh house, real astrologer. This is why I'm choosing that one. But, <laughs> um, but what about the, the signs themselves? Like, does the aspect between the signs in that case mean anything? I would say when one person has a natal aspect that that's, they're encountering difficulties with, say it could be moon square Pluto. When you're with this person, you're going to be picking up on their energy because people are like transits mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, are, they're there to explore. And oftentimes we attract people who are going to trigger our own inner tensions. So if their natal aspect is in some way triggering yours, then you will, both be feeling this energy very strongly. Okay. You uh, you were also in, uh, you, you said you wanted to talk about um, sort of like uh, relationships that were themed around Saturn and Pluto and Neptune and Lilith. Um, what is that sort of, what are, you, what are you talking about with that sort of stuff? Like what would a Saturnian themed relationship be? Would that be like somebody dating somebody 30 years younger than them? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it can be associated with that. Uh-huh. Um, oftentimes, uh, we were mentioning before how Saturn is the lord of karma. So for deeply karmic ties, we would look to Saturnian but also Plutonic relationships. But Saturn especially, it's about responsibility and duty and structure. And these are usually the longer-lasting relationships that serve more importance in our lives. There may be kind of a parental role. Say the Saturn person is providing structure and order and a guiding hand to the Sun person who is aspecting. Or if there's a difficult aspect between Saturn and the Sun or personal planets, it could be that this person is teaching responsibility and all the ways that this person is not showing up in their lives. And it could seem like a hardship as you're enduring it, but ultimately it's a kick in the ass to kind of grow and evolve into the greatest version of yourself and to really show up for your life because Saturn's all about discipline, hard work, and responsibility, but also rewards over the longer term. And there can be a market age difference or something like a mentorship quality or flavor to that kind of relationship. Okay. Yeah. Because I guess you can kind of make some broad assumptions, right? Like, uh, you know, Saturn moves, moves in about a 30 year cycle. So, you know, people who are what, like eight years away from you are going to tend to have a squared Saturn, I guess, seven to eight years to have a squared, a Saturn squared yours, which would be maybe a little tough. Um, does that kind of, and you were saying before that that kind of like those outer planets kind of play out more uh, subconsciously, but does that, do you think, um, does that help explain stuff like when people talk about seeing like a generation gap? 
I believe so. That's a lot of the part of it. Also, uh, what sign the Pluto is in, you would notice more generational gap-like things. Pluto's currently in Capricorn and is going to enter Aquarius uh, in 2022. Don't count me on that. (laughs) I'm not entirely positive. In a few years, we'll enter Aquarius and... My Pluto's in Sagittarius, natally, at zero degrees. That was around 1995 when Pluto went in Sag. Uh, and Pluto takes like 20 years to go from sign to sign or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it varies. There's It moves in kind of a elliptical shape, so it, it can spend uh, yeah, around 20 years for each sign, give or take, but some signs a little bit longer, so they're mm-hmm. shorter. Uh, so then Pluto would be, so you're, you're not going to get a lot of really harsh aspects between two different people's Plutos unless you are hanging out with a vampire probably, right? So it's going to be mostly, (laughs) mostly pretty close together. Um, and then, so Saturn would be something that would, but, uh, but also you have to worry about how Saturn is aspecting the other planets, don't you? I guess I keep focusing on just one planet interacting with the same planet in the other person's chart but that's just kind of like that would probably just be like your 101 level look at uh, sinistry well interestingly enough we all encounter a pluto square around age Mm -hmm. 40 so if there is a 40 year age difference then you would expect your pluto to be square the other person's pluto Mm. but that would be under very rare circumstances i would suppose but um yeah that's more like uh you know ceos hiring news hiring uh, newsroom boys or something <laughs> or i mean i guess you don't you, you yeah it's it's rare that you uh interact with people who are or or have like really close relationships with people who are who have that much of an age difference unless it's like grandparents perhaps yeah. All right. Interesting. Uh, so then what about Neptunian stuff? Cause Neptune, um, I don't wait, what's Neptune's period. I don't even know how long it takes Neptune to make a full revolution of the sun. Is it like 40 years? That's about 14 years in each sign. Okay, so let's see. It takes 165 years to go all the way around the, um, sun. That's a little while. Neptune is a pretty interesting one. There's lots of different dynamics that Neptune can mm-hmm. take. It rules the 12th house, which is the planet of spirituality, the subconscious, things that are hidden from us. It's also the planet of deception. It's a boundary dissolver. But it's also the planet of compassion, uh, suffering, enlightenment, and selfless service. So if you come across a person who is heavily Neptune themselves, then there can be some tendency towards escapism. There may have been an absent parent in the childhood where this person has learned how to escape themselves essentially and it's through these inner worlds it can be through creativity 
and art and music that this person is kind of a dreamer and a visionary. There's this association with, um, you know, using substances for escapism, but also, uh, for me personally, I think Neptune rolls psychedelics and theogens, but depending on how Neptune plays out, there can be several different ways. There can be issues of victimization with the person, but, uh, this rolls out through deception, either deception within the self or the other. Mm-hmm. I have Venus, Neptune contacts. It can be that there's some deception happening there, maybe some infidelity, or there can be over idealizing this person and then becoming disappointed when they show that they're a human being. If you look, Say, for instance, a, pearl, a person had Venus square Neptune natally, and they come across a person who's very uh, heavily Neptune themselves, then it, it can activate a little bit of these issues. And this is the lower energy of Neptune, this escapism, possible drug addiction, deception, disillusionments, but the higher energy of Neptune are these masterful works of art because uh, we're escaping in more of a healthy way and we are astrally traveling through all of these different realms, this vast landscape of emotions to create these really beautiful works of art, heavily Neptune people, oftentimes great artists and there can be lots of emphasis on spirituality with a heavy Neptune contact. Say this person's son falls into your 12th house. It's not entirely the same energy, but uh, it's still the Pisces-Neptune kind of feel. The son in 12th house would relate in different ways, but there's Neptune contacts, and you can also encounter spiritual teachers this way, especially if there's some Saturn in there and possible Pluto. A lot of occultists I know are very heavy Neptune dominant themselves and heavily Plutonic as well. How do you, how would you determine Neptune dominance in a chart? Like what would you look for? Uh, 12th house planets. So any planet falling within the 12th house doesn't have to be a personal planet necessarily, just looking where the ascendant lies. So there's going to be that feel of, Pisces, if they are Pisces Sun, they're ruled by Neptune. Uh, third Deacon Cancer is ruled by Neptune. If you look at the different decants of water signs, then there will be a Neptune co-roller alongside with it. And they're looking to see how Neptune is aspecting that person's personal planets. Okay. Uh, so where is Neptune these days? Neptune is transiting Pisces in its home sign currently. Oh. So I think that this is why there's a lot of interest in occultism and spirituality is kind of experiencing this different feel about it where it's almost like all of these social media influencers or witches and there's lots of, you know, astrology talk on Twitter these days. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there is. The uh, the amount of astrology on Twitter these days is a little, is a little astounding. <laughs> I I'm I wonder like 
when, before you got into sort of looking at modern astrology, did you spend very much time looking at traditional astrology? Um, sort of like the pre-outer planets stuff? There is um, astrology spanning back to the Babylonian, uh, Egyptian. Mm-hmm. I, I did study Egyptian astrology a bit, but it's it's a totally different feel. But also medieval astrology, when I was studying, uh, you know, like the traditional planetary rulers, I have a lot of uh, studying within the Golden Dawn style uh, mm-hmm. system of magic and even just uh, we were going to do a podcast on geomancy but I figured you know we would have a lot more to discuss with synastry and it might be a little more interesting but, uh, studying the Picatrix and all these uh, original planetary rulers and how that is uh, integrated into more Kabbalistic magic and how do you how do you feel about uh I mean, when you when you're looking at um, sort of like the way that the newer planets um, have kind of like taken over some of the signs, do do you feel like it usually makes sense? Like, uh, I mean, I'm totally you know, like I said before, I'm I'm haven't spent very much time looking at modern astrology at all. So, uh, like re, re, it, Pluto rules. Wait, where does is is Pluto at home in Aquarius now? Uh, Scorpio. Scorpio. Was Scorpio. Mars was the ancient ruler of Scorpio, but also Aries. Um, and Saturn used to rule Aquarius, and Jupiter used to rule Pisces. But now Uranus rules Aquarius, and Neptune rules Pisces. It's kind of how things have changed. I think that's ironic. You know, like if you look at the uh, the the mythology of those guys, like uh, Saturn is Kronos, and um, you know, defeated uh, Uranus and sort of cast him out of the, and took over his realm. And I think it's ironic that now um, Uranus has, uh, he's had his revenge. <laughs> uh, that's funny. And do you feel like it makes, it? does it uh, does it work well? Does it sort of uh, mesh together well? Like, I guess I've, I've been really curious as to how, how modern astrology has not only incorporated these new planets, but kind of found what they would have rulership or influence over. Is that sort of set in stone? Is it something that's still kind of um, evolving, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we're constantly discovering new asteroids as well, and that comes into Sinistry pretty heavily as well. And as far as how astrology has changed over time, once we become consciously aware of how these planets are influencing us on some level, um, something I've noticed with this, like if a person has an outer planet and it retrograde natally, it's like the energy of that planet is missing. So when we become consciously aware of integrating, you know, the energy of the cosmos within ourselves, then we notice a lot of personal transformations occurring. So, for instance, I have all five outer planets retrograde natally. All of this energy is absent in my childhood, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. once I became consciously aware of how these planets uh, would be able to provide some sort of structure and order and things and balancing my psyche, I was noticing huge transformations within myself. And 
they are very slow moving. So it takes a lot of sensitivity and psychic development and in development of the intuition and of the psychic will in order to integrate these planets and what they represent. All right. That's, I guess I did not know that. Uh, I don't know how, how many retrograde outer planets I had and uh, I have in my uh, natal chart, but maybe I'll have to look. <laughs> um, Okay, so let's talk about the asteroids. Like, how do how are the asteroids incorporated into this? Well, we were going to discuss asteroid yeah. Lilith, but Chiron is also one that we would look for, and Vesta. There's less of a prominent um, feel with the asteroids, but with Lilith especially. Uh, there's three different kinds of Lilith. We'll be looking at Black Moon Lilith. So there's issues of sexuality that are very strongly emphasized. And Lilith was the first wife, of course, and we all know how that turned out. <laughs> she refused to be, you know, submissive to a man, so uh, I'm at Eve instead, but... Lilith is kind of those righteous feminist bitch. I have Lilith on my ascendant, so <laughs> I. It depends. Uh, lots of women have Lilith aspected more strongly in their charts, but say, you know, a man has issues with Lilith. This can be wanting to. Uh, it's like he appreciates her freedom and her sense of self-expression, but there's also this need to get her pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen, so to speak. It's like this kind of uh, empowerment is threatening in some way. And I think this is interesting with, you know, how feminism has evolved recently and how women's rights are being taken on in this day and age. And there's more of a radical shift towards this. And I, I thought it would be interesting to bring up, but Lilith especially would be, you know, a very empowered and sexually confident woman it's also about this primal kind of visceral emotional response where it's like you feel in your body the other person's energy and you can get you know it's like a first impression of meeting somebody you would immediately pick up on their energy and feel you know what they were like this this is a little of talking through us it's a, it's a very somatic response mm-hmm. and so all all three of those asteroids that you mentioned are they all in the the kind of like the asteroid belt between um, the inner and outer planets? Yeah, there's... Lilith is so fickle, and she shows up in a lot of different ways, but there's a mean Lilith, true Lilith, and then black moon Lilith, and if you go on Astrodice, you'll be able to uh, look at a very in-depth chart reading to see where each of these asteroids may lay, and it would be interesting to study... uh, Lilith synastry uh, and say a romantic partnership just because there can be issues with power and give and take and Lilith almost has this kind of plutonic feel. How have you seen Lilith play out in uh, synastric stuff? (laughs) (laughs) For me personally um, from where I have Lilith on my ascendant in the 12th house at like a zero degrees conjunction. Uh, lots of my relationships uh, have had this Lilith theme about them where 
it's almost like I would encounter men who are not used to being with very empowered women who are, it's almost like they had issues with um, not being the dominant personality in the relationship because I, I do think that Lilith type women especially uh, like to remain dominant in these kind of situations. So it's almost like plutonic energy in that way that there's more power struggles and oh, who wears, you know, the pants in the relationship. And, I mean, I, I don't want to disparage an entire gender, but uh, that seems to, co- I think that covers like most men. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a pretty common um, way for, uh, for men to sort of like be raised or to be uh, trained to approach relationships. So it could be, maybe they just need some experience or something. Yes. Well, it's even men in their forties and fifties that encountered like this, or they they're used to a more traditional role. So they get very thrown off and uh, kind of off kilter when they are with a more dominant woman in mm-hmm. that way. Well, that sounds rough. I'm sorry about that. that's it's good for them like they're evolving and growing as people they're better for it how do you so then where like if you if you were to find to look for some sort of uh uh ideal location for lilith or ideal i mean i'm still trying to some part of my brain is still trying to wrap around this concept in this synastry charts of like you can compare the houses as much as you can compare. So you can, you can line up the comparisons in different ways, right? You can do it by where the houses lie. So like your Lilith is on your ascendant, but you can also look at where Lilith is in your, like where, uh, you know, where it is in the, in the sky compared to, you know, against the, the Zodiac, uh, the signs too. Um, yes. And so that's going to give it a different kind of influence. And so, like, you might meet somebody else with Lilith on the Ascendant, but if their Lilith is in, I don't know, some sort of bad place for Lilith to be Pisces? Who knows? Where's Lilith bad? I don't think Lilith really has a detriment or fall. Like, you know, Saturn in Aries might be considered a detriment as Saturn rules Capricorn, but in Aries it's not so strong in this place and it's more inhibition of one's self-expression. But Lilith uh, doesn't really have a detriment or fall. It's more, this is a person's kind of sexual visceral response when we are looking to Lilith and it it takes on kind of the traits and aspects of the sign. Hmm. So when you're talking about the black moon and the black moon Lilith and the mean Lilith and the true Lilith is, is Lilith like an actual asteroid or is Lilith one of the, the um, like theoretical asteroids sort of thing? Theoretical and actual. Okay. How does that work? Well, it's, it moves very quickly. Like Lilith is very erratic, so it can be a bit difficult to pin down. But when we're, Doing typical natal readings, we would look to the true node Lilith, but the energy can show up in different ways, and there's kind of different flavors for each of the asteroids, I think, just because Lilith is so dynamic in and of itself. But this might be a good 
topic to write a book about. Asteroid Lilith. <laughs> I, I'm going to put that on your book list and not mine. <laughs> um okay yeah i guess uh that's something that i would i would like to to see more about i i uh i'm kind of ignorant of how the asteroids work in astrology and so what about uh kiran and vesta do they have very much influence on sinistry sure so chiron is a wounded healer and it it shows kind of where we've been wounded in the past, but it's kind of this wound that doesn't quite heal, but it's almost like this pain is driving us towards healing. Say, for instance, I have Chiron on my north node in the third house, so it's learning how to excommunicate this wounding and healing, and of course I ended up doing astrology uh, North Node might be interesting to discuss in terms of asteroids as well, but um, say that Chiron falls into another person's fifth house, there may be some wounding regarding children or creative self-expression or making the person feel wounded for expressing themselves in some way. Or say it falls into the eighth house, there can be some sexual wounding Mm. in this way and we not to say that you know every person's chiron falls into your eighth house would inflict abuse in some way but um we would also look from our volatile aspects between mars and pluto where we would see kind of I, i wanted to discuss like what what constitute a healthy relationship as opposed to you know one that's wounding or one that may be healing because uh, there's a difference here. And if we have some harsher aspects, but Chiron is helping to mitigate those, it can be that there's a mutual bonding through, uh, you know, these shadow aspects of ourselves, but uh, also a shared goal goal towards healing uh, in this partnership. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting too. So one of the things that I'm kind of enjoying about listening to these interpretations of these um the outer planets and i mean especially the asteroids like both lilith and chiron or chiron um have kind of adopted interpretations based on their mythological counterparts even though they are like they weren't named by astrologers isn't is that in do you find that kind of interesting yeah and there's always new asteroids being discovered as well. So it's just interesting to see how mythology plays a role in all of this. And yeah, it, it's super fascinating. I haven't delved so much into studying the plethora of asteroids that there are, just you know, looking for the main ones. It might be important. Some astrologers specialize in asteroids others ignore them entirely but yeah I, I i suspect there must be some astrologers out there that are like all that are way into asteroids it'd be interesting to see what kind of stuff they come up with i mean you know i mean there are there are thousands and thousands of asteroids in the in the asteroid belt so at some point you would think it would just turn into astrological noise yes <laughs> Um, so another thing about the asteroids is they have a different, so you look at 
where they are uh, along the, you know, the, in terms of like houses and signs, do you also worry about, um, no, I can't what it's called, but the uh, deviation that they have from the, the plane, you know, so like uh, Pluto has a weird orbit where it's, um, where it can be, where it can be, you know, pretty far off the, um, the ecliptic compared to a lot of the other planets. And I think some of the asteroids do too, don't they? I don't know if that comes into account when you're doing charts or anything like that. Yeah. Um, the same thing with Lilith, like her movement's very erratic, but when we are able to erect a natal chart, I, I guess it's only dependent upon where that asteroid is placed in the sky the moment you were born or the other person has been born. Hmm. And there can also be, um, outer planet transits to our natal asteroids. And I've noticed those pretty strongly, like, or even just Venus conjunct my natal Vesta, for instance, there's lots of, you know, I would have like a nice romantic evening at home or I would just beautify my space and get some new furniture or decorations and, or, or I might, you know, enjoy some nice artwork at home and mm-hmm. more of a creative, habitual environment. Well, that sounds, yeah, I, it sounds like there's a lot there to look into. Uh, so you do a, um, like a regular, um, sort of like astrological video or, or, or you do like blog posts, right? For, uh, pretty regularly. Yeah. I write horoscopes every week and I've been doing this for a few years and also do tarot readings and geomancy and. Oh. Doing spell working for people as well. So oh, that's a lot of that's a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm not I'm not surprised. <laughs> but <laughs> um, well, uh, so can you tell people how to find you on the internet? Sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter primarily, Twitter.com/slash/discordastro. I'm on Facebook as well, Facebook Discordian Astrology. And my website is discordastrology.blogspot.com, where I post weekly updates on all of my blogging platforms pretty regularly. And we're branching off onto YouTube and trying to create some more content this way related to magic and astrology and astrological magic, of course. And wanting to release a book on Sinistry at some point and possibly even Lilith will keep updates for that in the future. You know, I feel like given the fact that you're, uh, that, uh, your Discordian astrology, we did a huge disservice by not even mentioning Eris. Like does the planet Eris <laughs> who, you know, is, is a trans Plutonian object have any in have he, have any impact on astrology yet? Like our astrologers looking at that placement or looking at, what it could be. I mean, it's so far, I guess, you know, it with stuff like that. Like it's so far away that, you know, the, we, we get barely any light from it. So I'm just wondering like, how's, how are astrologers dealing with that? So again, with this theme of, uh, how mythology is playing into what the planets are kind of experiencing within us, uh, so Eris is the goddess of discord, and it can be a bit more volatile of a planet. And when 
something triggers, like say Mercury would be square Eris, there can be a bit of fights or chaotic kind of communications that may come up. And her archetype is this goddess of discord and goddess of war. So I think it ties into these Lilith themes a little bit, Lilith, Pluto, Mars kind of energies. Yeah, I I guess it would be interesting to see how astrologers decide that stuff and who kind of um, comes up with it and if it is relying more on some kind of like consensus building or or what's going on there. Because we haven't known about Eris for very long. Yeah, she's one of the more recent yeah, ones. So then, but... uh, yeah, so it, it, I guess it sort of seems to me like what would astrologers do to try to figure out what that, what sort of influence that planet would have? It's kind of the same thing with creating a magical journal. Mm-hmm. And you can always look at what Eris is doing in the sky and if she's triggering any personal points or you can pinpoint exactly when one of your personal planets may be aspecting, say, your natal Eris or mundane astrology, transiting planets, how they would affect your natal Eris. Mm-hmm. And just try to see what comes up. Like A good practice to get into every day is looking at a natal chart for the day, just the current uh, planetary energies, mm-hmm. even tracking the transits pretty regularly and seeing what those would trigger. And just creating a journal and a diary and recording what happens. That is a good idea. Well, this has been this has been super informative. Um, I have a lot more questions, probably. Or I will have more questions. This is something that I have explored so little that I'm not... I, I hope that I asked good ones. <laughs> but uh, thank you for sharing all of this stuff. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And happy Scorpio New Moon, the time we're recording this. And oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.